0: Maya Ketcharovsky is a product manager in security and privacy at Google, focused on container security. She previously worked on encryption at rest and encryption key management. Maya has a master's in mathematics focusing on cryptography and game theory. Maya joins us to discuss how containers improve security, a high-level threat model of containers and orchestration, and tips for improving security as you roll out containers and Kubernetes. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Maya Ketcharovsky. Are you trying to build a Security Champions program? Everyone is these days. One challenge of rolling out Security Champions is, how do we educate all these new folks? Security Journey has your answer. We provide a security dojo environment with level-based security education that gives your newfound champions a path to follow. And the best part? It requires almost zero administration by you. Visit www.securityjourney.com to set up a demo and learn how you can use the security dojo to connect with your security champions. Hey, folks, welcome to this episode of the Application Security Podcast. This is Chris Romeo, CEO of Security Journey and co-host of said podcast. I'm also joined by Robert Hurlbut today. Hey, Robert, how's it going? Hey, Chris. Yes, it's Robert, uh, Threat Modeling Architect. Good to be here. So our focus of this episode is container security and orchestration security. And we're joined today by Maya Kacharovsky. And Maya, we're just going to jump right in here. And our listeners are always on the edge of their seats waiting to hear people's security origin stories. So we want to ask you if there was a comic book episode one in the Maya story about security, what would that contain? And and what are the things that you could share with us?
1: Yeah, uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, It's funny. I don't think of myself as as having an origin story at all. So it's interesting that you're framing it that way. Um, I got interested in, uh, I think I've always been interested in security and in puzzles. Uh, so as a kid, I loved like word puzzles and jigsaw puzzles and logic puzzles and everything like that. And when I was in college, I studied math, which I still enjoy and decided to work in cryptography. It kind of felt like a really nice combination of, uh, real world puzzles and really hard math, right? Like no math involving numbers, just, just, just math involving letters, uh, so did some algebra focused on cryptography, and uh, ended up studying that in my degree. Uh, ended up working in something completely unrelated. Ended up working as a management consultant for a few years. Knew that I was excited about the security space. Um, if there was a there was a second input to my to to, to that part of my life beyond beyond uh, studying cryptography, it was uh, you're gonna laugh at me, and this will date me. It was uh, an article in Wired. I want to say in like 2008 about uh, the Estonia state attacks, state actor attacks. And I just thought it was such an interesting topic from like a geopolitical and, and social point of view. And so I think the combination of cryptography and, and these these real, real world state attacks uh, made me really interested in the space. Uh, and so when I had the opportunity a few years later, when I was a consultant to start doing work in security, um, I took it. And ended up, uh, it's been, I guess, seven years or something like that now that I've been in the space. And I I really find it uh, super interesting and super fascinating.
0: Yeah, I I remember that Wired article that you're talking about, the (laughs) Scotia State Attacks. I remember reading that as well, thinking that was pretty interesting. So how, how did you get to containers? And we're going to introduce containers and orchestration in a second. But I'm fascinated with how did you get to the world of containers and orchestration from the world of kind of management consulting?
1: Yeah. So from from management consulting, I worked in security. I did some security work for large enterprises in healthcare, financial, insurance, et cetera. Um, you know, typically the, uh, the typical engagement would have been something like we've had a breach. We've had someone come in and clean that up. The board has written us a white, you know, a blank check, uh, help us figure out what we should be building. What like how does a, stand up a SOC, stand up a, a vulnerability management program, stand up these these standard things that you would expect in some large enterprises. Um. So I was doing that work, and at that time, uh, Google reached out to me, and I uh, joined Google as a product manager. Uh, initially, uh, I ended up focusing on encryption, again, because the area that I that I was excited about and, and knew a lot about from before. And then about two years ago, I uh, decided to switch topics. I knew I wanted to stay in security, but wanted to, to go look at something else. The reason I picked containers is more you know selfish than anything else. It was an area that I saw gaining a lot of traction Uh, with users in the market in an area that I saw needed a lot of um, guidance and a lot of direction. And, you know, I could have a lot of impact in that space. Uh, And so I decided to go work on that so that I could, I could do that. I wanted to be able to work on something cool and exciting.
0: Now I've, I've seen a a few of your talks online, things that you've done, you know, about container security and things. And um, I was at a big tech company for a number of years as well. And I'm, I was I was looking at kind of what you were doing and thinking wow this is a product manager someone with a product manager tighter title who's very technical who understands all the pieces and now you're telling me that you're you know somebody who knows cryptography as well so not really kind of the standard product manager background that I think of and so how has that ex- your no- your technical knowledge and your security experience influenced you as a product manager
1: it's it's funny that you say that i think maybe it's a a reflection of Google more than more than otherwise, but Google has fairly technical product managers. Um, I think it would be basically impossible for me to do my job without understanding some of the the depth of detail that we have uh, in our products. Um, it's been it's been a benefit more than anything else. Obviously, uh, I think the the only flip side of of having having the desire to get more technical is not being able to directly go fix problems myself sometimes. Um, or, or like you're describing like some of the talks and content that I give, right? That's not strictly in my job description, but something that I do because I find it interesting and because I think it's actually makes a big difference in terms of how users perceive and, and can consume that security, right? A, a huge part of it is just telling people that features or or functionality exists that they don't even know about. Um, so, so gaining adoption of something like, I don't know, network policy or pod security policy in Kubernetes in the industry isn't about building a feature. It's about telling people it's there
0: yeah so kind of the the pieces that a lot of people it seems like these days don't even know they exist, like all these security features and things in these tools exactly. well, let's start by kind of level setting for folks I, I, I always hate to assume that everybody knows when we say container and orchestration, I always hate to assume that everybody knows what we're talking about. And so it'd be great if you could give us kind of a high level view. And when, when we're talking about a container and we're talking about orchestration, what do these terms actually mean?
1: Sure. So a container is just a Linux construct, right? If you already know how to, you know, some Linux security, it's not anything significantly new. It's it's a it's a way for you to, um, a container is a way for you to package your application and its libraries and dependencies to make it significantly more portable. So kind of how we had the evolution from, you know, a, a traditional software stack and that you cared about what hardware you're running on, you know, 20 years ago to virtual machines, and you could suddenly abstract away the, the hardware that you're using. The step that we've taken now is one step further, which is I don't have to worry about the hardware or the OS that I'm using. I can just take my application and its dependencies and put it anywhere in my environment. right? And That makes it significantly easier for you to deploy your workload um, across many different environments. It makes it easier for you to have high resource utilization. Uh, It becomes a a very different model of of managing your workloads than what you had before. Um, Now, what that leads to is the second piece, which is orchestration, which is it's actually really easy to just get one container or 10 containers up and running like locally, you're fine. Once you start deploying all of your applications in containers, you're looking at managing thousands of containers at a time, right? And, and you want to have some of them up and running, you want to, to, to benefit from the the, the from the purpose of containers and that they're easily easy to scale up and down. So you don't, you don't want to have to individually go in there and be like, oh, well, I need 89 containers today, but I only need 88 yesterday, let me change that. So a lot of the container orchestration pieces are around scaling up your containers, um, managing things like load balancing of of traffic between your containers, um, best bin packing them for best resource utilization. Um, If something is wrong with a container kind of alerting you and letting you fix that, that's what container orchestration lets you do. And and the most uh, common tool in that space is this open source project called Kubernetes, uh, which makes it very easy for you to do that at, at scale.
0: Yeah, when I when I think uh, containers and orchestration, I kind of end up landing and thinking, hey, Docker and Kubernetes, but there are other alternatives, maybe not as prevalent, at least in the container side. Let's start with the container side. Is Docker synonymous with container or are there other options there?
1: Um, Docker released one of the original um, runtimes that gained a lot of popularity and traction in the market. Um, in terms of adoption, right? It's an open source, it's open source runtime. Obviously Docker has other products in this space that they they sell. Um, I I don't know, I don't know adoption numbers offhand, uh, but we see other projects in open source also gaining traction now in terms of container runtimes. Um, Anything that's uh, like cryo based, uh, container runtime interface something based. So another example is container D which is another open source project. Uh, We see a lot of people moving towards, towards that as an alternative runtime. Um, in terms of orchestration, you're correct. There are many different orchestration options up, out there. Uh, a lot, an increasing percentage of them are uh, Kubernetes-based, and that's just in general. This whole space has really benefited from uh, open sourcing projects and an open source community that's really dedicated and excited and interested in working on these on these projects at scale.
0: Yeah, that's great. It's very helpful to to set the stage here a little bit about these ideas of containers and orchestration. Let's kind of transition a little bit into the world of security in regards to containers. And I'll, I'll throw out a kind of a statement I've heard. I heard somebody say, and I'm curious, Maya, if you're you know, going <laughs> to agree with this or you're going to disagree with it. And, and um, certainly happy to hear kind of either, either side, because I don't even know where I stand on this issue that, and that is containers are not a security tool is what somebody said. And so I'm curious, is that, do you agree with that statement? Do you disagree? Why or why not?
1: I, I'm i gonna lean towards agreeing and I'll sort of explain my philosophy here. Um, containers in and of themselves change nothing in your security model. In fact, if you look at the the name of the thing container, mm-hmm. it doesn't even contain from a security point of view. So that's, that's a bit misleading already in terms of what it does. Um, now, that being said, If you adopt the philosophy and a lot of the the tools that come with running in containers, things like a microservices architecture, things like a further lockdown CI CD pipeline, you can actually get significantly higher security benefits than a traditional security model. Um, And so what I mean by that is, um, if you're able to to, to, to lock down your pipe. So before, like you had a VM running and you wanted to make a change. So you'd SSH into the VM, make a change live in production probably, and then and then watch it roll out and see what happens, right? And that's also how you did things like patching, like how you patch things like Heartbleed a couple of years back. Now, if you use containers, you're actually not supposed to change containers once they're running in production. Containers are meant to be immutable. So instead of SSHing in and making a change, you patch, uh, you apply a patch to to um, to an existing application, you rebuild that as a new image, and you roll out that image. And that rollout has the same. Uh, canarying, testing, monitoring, all of that kind of stuff, all that tooling that you have as for any other production rollout you're doing. So any kind of patching now becomes a normal production rollout. And what that means is that you can apply a patch at scale across your infrastructure relatively quickly um, and know exactly where it has and hasn't been patched, which is which is a bit different from the from the old model. And so that's that's a wonderful like, Blue sky, you know, situation to be in, and I've seen a handful of companies uh, be able to actually achieve something like that because you need so many other pieces. You need a CI/CD pipeline that you've, uh, sorry, a continuous integration, continuous development pipeline that you've locked down so that you know what kinds of changes are going in. You need enforcement mechanisms to know that the only things that you're deploying are actually coming out of that pipeline. You need um, ways of doing what I described earlier, which is which is a blue green deployment, which is when you deploy a new workload uh, that, for example, is patched and you have an old workload that isn't patched, and you move traffic over from the old workload to the new workload, you need lots of these pieces that aren't security-specific pieces. But if you don't have those, you don't get the security benefits.
0: So if I, I kind of summarize that list, I want to make sure I, I, I capture the list of you know, how containers improve security correctly. And so you, you talked about the microservice architecture. Just being in that architecture, there, there's some security benefit in splitting things up. Um, locking down your CI CD pipeline because you've got, you know, with the proper enforcement mechanisms, you're able to push out new versions and then kind of retire the old ones. And then you also talked about kind of patching. So are there other improve or other things that improve security related to containers?
1: Yeah. One of some, of, one of the ones I didn't really mention earlier, I said, I said containers don't contain. Um, and I think it's a common misconception that, you can't have both, right? People think, oh, I have a container. I can't have strong isolation like I did with a hypervisor or a VM boundary, et cetera. Um, that's true. You can't have exactly the same thing, but you can have other isolation mechanisms um, that, that exist, uh, again, in open source, like GVisor, Kata containers, Nabla containers. There's lots of different options out there for providing similar types of isolation. Um, so so as, we, as you just said, you know, CICD pipeline lockdown, patch management, um, enforcement of what ends up in your infrastructure. So being able to actually uh, have a check that says, you know, these containers must meet these requirements before being admitted to my infrastructure. It's what's called an admission controller in, in Kubernetes. Um, and then workload isolation provided by some of these open source projects. Um, you, can, you can get, so I, I guess my, my, my top level message is, you can get a lot of benefits for security out of containers, but it's not the container that gives you that benefit. It's the tooling that's been built around containers and or other practices that you adopt with the adoption of containers that give, give you those security benefits.
0: Okay, so when you think about the kind of the high-level threat model of containers and orchestration, what are, the, what are some of the things on your list that you're, that you're thinking about when you put your, your kind of your attacker hat on and you start thinking from the outside looking inbound to the Kubernetes clusters and the containers that are running within?
1: yeah I think there's two things to, to to two different ways of thinking about this. The first one is um, worrying about attacks that are on applications that just happen to be in containers. So an attacker doesn't really care where your application is running. They're gonna you know try to get into your Jenkins or your your WordPress or whatever um, that you have up and running through some vulnerability that you've left unpatched. and they probably might they might be in a container and they might not even realize. So what we're seeing is not people who are necessarily aware, attackers who are not actually aware of containers or containerized infrastructures, and who don't necessarily try to do anything interesting, like break out of a container, um, when, they, when they've when they discovered such, such a containerized workload. They're just after the easy way of making money, you know, let me pop this shell and I'll run some cryptocurrency mining, and that's fine that I only got a container and not and not the host. It doesn't matter, it still works for cryptocurrency mining. Um, the second type of concern I would have or attack a concern uh, would be on containers themselves and not necessarily on containers themselves like like again trying to break out of a container, but more likely on the container orchestration system. So um, because Kubernetes is still relatively new, although it's, you know, open source and lots of different people are working on it, um, it has some less than desirable defaults from a security point of view um and there are people who have been running kubernetes for years who have never gone back and changed what those some of those defaults are and improve the security of their of their uh, of their deployments so really simple concerns like having your api server which is the the control plane for kubernetes be publicly accessible on the public web and not putting authentication in front of it or having a um uh, ui dashboard which is another open source component um, that has the power to do things with the API server to, with the API server again publicly accessible on the on, on the web um, that an attacker can go find on like showdown or something so the issue there is not um, you doing inherently anything wrong with your workload it's you having a misconfiguration of your of your environment just like you might have a misconfiguration of an application a, a server a cloud whatever it happens to be
0: one thing you also mentioned was locking down your CI, CD uh, pipeline. Uh, one thought I, I had, I remember this was also one of the threat models I've seen or threat modeling uh, perspective on containers was at some point or one point in the early days, it seemed like you could get containers everywhere. You can download them from different places and then run them. And that was one of the things we always say, don't do that. You know, how, yeah. do, you, do you know where it came from? Do you know if that's still uh, people still doing that? People are very
1: that? much still doing that. Yes. So what you're describing is what I, what we call um software supply chain security. Yes. So knowing what ends up in in your environment from a software point of view and where it came from. And I'll, we often tie this to containers, and I think that's right, but it's actually more than containers. It's any binaries or packages or libraries. Containers just made it really easy to consume, but that's that's it's any of that stuff that you're pulling into your environment. So um, typical attacks that have happened in the last months and years have been people planting uh, cryptocurrency mining software, planting um, tools to try to capture passwords for specific types of crypto wallets, et cetera, in images that are, that are widely available or packages or binaries that are widely available, knowing that someone will pull it and try to run it and therefore um, you know, benefit them in some way. Uh, some of it has been targeted. So again, like looking for developers of specific applications. And some of it has been just broad swaths of hopefully somebody will run this and, 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 you know, I'll get some money out of it. And some of it has been um, to known widely used packages and applications. And some of it has been what we call like typo squatting, which is this looks like a play thing or somebody might mistype the actual container that they want. And they'll download this kind of like if if I was going to buy a, uh, a website that would be like a you know a couple letters off of a, a popular website and get traffic just by, by people by people going there by accident.
0: I'd never thought about typo squatting in an image name for. A container.
1: <laughs> it's a it's a real concern. Like what's stopping me from mistyping this thing? Any developer from mistyping something and then pulling completely the wrong image.
0: So like with with any of those type of typo squatting things that you've seen. Is it the case where the image is trying to like take advantage of like a bad security policy that might exist in a cluster to access like a root file system of um, whatever the host is that's running Docker? Or what, what's what what can they do? I guess with that what, what, when they have a bad yeah. container there, what's what's their goal?
1: I haven't seen type four squatting yet. Be about um, a particular application and trying to model that application, which I think is sort of what you're going or cool. describing. Um, one, one example would be last summer, somebody put multiple up Docker images on Docker Hub that were names like Docker one, two, three, three, two, one. Knowing that like, hey, I'm just gonna play around with this thing and test some stuff out. I just need a random name. And it was downloaded like tens of millions of times. <laughs> like some absurd amount.
0: Wow. Um so are there any other types of attacks that we wanna focus in on that are that are kind of related to containers and, and orchestration?
1: No, I think it's really you you've Gotten me to narrow in on the three that we often think about, which is um, what we'll call like infrastructure security, which ends up being misconfigurations, mismanagement of like networking, secrets, et cetera. Software supply chain security, which is about what ends up in your pipeline and you knowing where it came from and if it's been scanned for vulnerabilities and et cetera. And then what we call runtime security, which is uh, what happens if somebody does attack your application uh, directly and can you detect that in a container? Can you take action in a container, do forensics, et
0: cetera? Okay, let's let's move to kind of the defender side, I guess, of this conversation. For those that are out there running Kubernetes and and starting to or or have container infrastructure, what are some of the things that you recommend folks do to improve their overall overall security posture?
1: I, th- I think it really depends how long, how far along you are. Um, so one of the conversations I've been having a lot lately is sort of what you do on day one, uh, day one security decisions, things things that if you do now, you'll benefit from later. Um, the first one I would mention would be structuring your environment. One of the first decisions you have to make when you're setting up Kubernetes is deciding, for example, how many clusters do you have? Are you gonna segment teams using clusters or projects or namespaces? Um, how do you want to manage uh, deployment deployment permissions for each of those different clusters. Are you gonna let everybody run their own cluster in your environment, which I see some, some some companies do, right? If they don't have a central infra team or a pass team, um, they let anyone go and spin up Kubernetes, which then makes it really hard to manage what's going on. So I think that's the first question. A second question I would have would be around your, your permission model. Um, so Kubernetes has built in something called role-based access control or RBAC, It's similar to RBAC that you've seen in basically any other security product ever. Uh, It lets you create um, roles and then grant users roles based on a set of permissions that they that you want to give them. Uh, So figuring out what your source of truth is going to be for your identities and what kinds of policies you're going to put in place is probably the next, you know, day one decision to, to make. Uh, another day one decision is around how you would like to deploy things to your environment. Again, going back to the CICD question, where ideally you've only deployed things to your environment that have been tested for vulnerabilities and come from your build pipeline, et cetera. Um, and, you know, often see people set up something like a, a service account rather than, so a machine account rather than a human to actually do that deployment, do that testing automatically. Um, and then lastly, there are some features in in Kubernetes or rather in um, in some of the hosted uh, Kubernetes offerings that can't be turned on after the fact. So they're only available on existing clusters. Um, so in that case, if, if, if you didn't kind of think ahead or plan ahead enough, uh, what we typically see happen or often see happen is somebody will have a toy cluster that they're testing out Kubernetes with and then they decide they wanna have more functionality later and they sort of built up that cluster and started tweaking it, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's been three months and they're like, oh man, I need that feature, I can't turn it on, but I'm ready too far down this road. So either kind of do a bit of planning ahead of time, create a toy cluster, test out a few things and see what works, but then, um, you know, rebuild that once you're ready to actually go to production with it um, and consider things like uh, different kinds of templating tools to make it even easier for you to spin that up in the future if you would want to do that again. So that's sort of like day one. I'm happy to talk about kind of other other parts of of what you see later. Um, but that it feels like a lot of the the people interested in containers and Kubernetes today, from a security point of view, are are relatively new. And so there's a lot of interest in in that in that decision.
0: Yeah, and just to to kind of summarize. So we're structuring the environment. We're deciding how many clusters we're going to use. How we're going to do separation between teams. We're thinking about permission models and RBAC. Uh, Maybe some other policies. And then we're considering deployment. How are we getting the containers into the cluster? And then you also talked about the toy cluster as a way to test things first and then rebuild when you're getting ready for production so that you don't accidentally turn something off that you think you're going to need and end up too far down the road. That's day one. That's day one. My, I saw a slide that you had, and I don't. Maybe you can you can mention which talk it came from, and for folks that it, that wanted to go track it down. But I saw a slide that had like um, like four quadrants where you were talking. I think about about kind of like day one stuff, and then you had kind of things in four in three other quadrants as well.
1: Yes, I think you're talking about uh, a talk I gave at Google Next in 2018. Uh, it was called Kubernetes for Enterprise Security Requirements. So there was a slide in there. It was, a, I think, a really great place to get started if you're looking at that. Called something like your security journey or your security journey on Kubernetes.
0: You know the name of our the name of my company's security journey. So that's how I found the slide.
1: Just searching for yourself. You have a word <laughs> set ready to go. <laughs> um, so so. Setting up a cluster is the first thing you're going to have to do. And some of the things we just talked about, like figuring out how to structure that environment, et cetera. But then setting up role-based access control, setting up network policies, namespaces, et cetera, for for them to work in your environment are some of the decisions you have to make on on the first day. Um, Then we said follow security hygiene. So things like keeping Kubernetes up to date. Um, This is actually kind of unusual, I think, for a lot of enterprise companies in the sense that Kubernetes has a new release every quarter. And is very good about actually releasing something new every quarter. And that means that both from a functionality point of view, you want to be able to pull, pull in the latest version, but also, more interestingly for me, from a security patch management point of view, when there's a critical vulnerability in Kubernetes, the Kubernetes product security committee releases a patch, and you want to be able to, to actually pull that in and update that. So if you're running Kubernetes yourself, make sure you can you can perform an update. And if you're using one of the hosted providers, make sure that they either give you a timeline for those for those um, patches or you have a feature like node auto-upgrade or something to apply the patches automatically in your environment. Some of the other security hygiene there is, is nothing new for, for security folks, things like minimum uh, IAM roles for minimum permissions, uh, a minimal OS uh, to not have additional content in your environment that you don't need to patch, um, using private IP addresses so your, so your, your applications are not widely available, uh, audit logging, et cetera. Um, then we had a section called preventing known attacks. Uh, so some, some of the things that we've seen in the wild, including some of the ones mentioned earlier, so things like disabling the Kubernetes dashboard, uh, protecting node metadata, scanning for known vulnerabilities. And then lastly, we said prevent and or limit the impact of uh, the compromise of a microservice. So it's a, an application that you have running on top of Kubernetes in, in, in a container. If that were to get compromised, how would you prevent that from spreading in your infrastructure? using things like pod security policy, protecting your secrets, using sandboxing technologies that we mentioned earlier, um, and then things like a a service mesh for authentication and encryption between between your your different services. So kind of rolling it back, it's set up a cluster, uh, follow the security hygiene, prevent known attacks, and then prevent or limit the impact of microservice compromise.
0: And so, kind of from the the things you talked about in that first section, we talked about day one, and then kind of follow security hygiene, having maybe a few other things added in the mix. What do you think is a realistic timeline for somebody who's new to Kubernetes? Say, let's just—I'll give you a scenario: someone uh, has been handed the task to say, "Hey, we want to use Kubernetes for our application deployments." and we want you to figure it out. What what do you think's a, a a reasonable timeline for them as they're getting into this and trying to understand all these pieces?
1: Yeah, I mean so like I'll I'll look at myself and like it probably took me 6 to 8 weeks to understand what kubernetes was even trying to do. And like and like I watched talks and like I read documents and I kind of understood the concept and played with it myself directly, but it, it takes a while to just to grok it. Like if you've never seen something like this before, it doesn't it doesn't resemble how you, how you manage your VMs before. It doesn't resemble a traditional enterprise architecture that you've seen before. So just from a concept point of view, it'll take you some time to get around it. Um, once you have the concept of Kubernetes, security isn't really that different. Like I said, like it's things like minimum privileges and like you know uh, locking down access to certain things and audit logging. Like those things are things that you're familiar with if you're a security person. So that stuff isn't new. Learning how to do it specifically in Kubernetes or with containers might be new. Um I would say that the the next frustration or difficulty I think in this space is if you're trying to do it all yourself, there isn't there is a lot of content out there. It is not necessarily super well organized. Because so many people are excited about Kubernetes and containers, there's a there, there's a lot of stuff where you can go learn about like how your IPs are rotated and whether you should you know set up a network policy, what it should look like, and like but but getting it all kind of in a concise like step-by-step guide. Isn't something that I've I've seen. Um, I know I know there's some some books coming out I think shortly from, from uh, in from the community so that should be good. Uh, I would say and again I'm extremely biased in, in, make, in making this statement but like one of the hosted providers will save you so much time and that they'll do like at least half of your to do list for you. Um, so if you have that option rather than running Kubernetes yourself from a security point of view I would take it. Um, there's obviously other considerations for why you should or shouldn't do that. But that should make your life significantly easier.
0: For somebody who might be new and jumping into this right now, are there any resources that you would point them to as a place to start?
1: Yeah, I would look at uh, some of the talks that are online from KubeCon. KubeCon is Kubernetes the, the Kubernetes conference. Uh, there's a lot of content on security. There's this, been a security track every time I've gone there. Um, so there's a lot of stuff out there. I would look um, on the Google side, we have a blog post series called exploring container security, uh, which you can get access to that has probably about 20 blogs now, 20 blog posts now that go over different aspects of container security. So if you kind of want something you can refer to quickly in that regard, Uh, we also have uh, an ebook, which is more targeted towards like a business reader who doesn't really understand what's, what's going on in that space. And then I would say there's a handful of people like it. You know, it sounds a little say but like on Twitter, like there there's a big security community and there's a big container community on Twitter, and the intersection is is louder and happier to be on Twitter than 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 either 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 one individually seems to be. Um, so so follow some some people in that space. Um, Ian Coldwater is obviously an expert in this space. Um, Greg Castle, uh, Ian Lewis. There's there's a bunch of interesting people saying interesting things online.
0: Very cool. Well, Maya, thank you for taking us on kind of this introductory walk into containers and orchestration and security. And uh, this has been very good. I've written a whole bunch of notes and uh, <laughs> a bunch of things to think about here. And so, yeah, I just really appreciate the fact that you would share this uh, this knowledge yeah. that you have with our audience. This has been very cool.
1: Yeah, of course. Thank you again so much for for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Application Security Podcast. You'll find the show on Twitter at AppSec Podcast or on the web at wwwsecurityjourneycom application security podcast. You can also find Chris on Twitter at Edgeroute and Robert at Robert Hurlbutt. Remember, security is a journey, not a destination.